You're listening to an audio message from Palm Vista Community Church. If you would like to check out more resources, please visit palmvista.org. Well, welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in Isaiah. The title of the series is Living in the Shadow of the Great King. Living in the Shadow of the Great King. And so the last three sermons in the series today... Next Sunday and the final Sunday on the sermon series on the, on the 16th, we're going to be looking at this great king. Today's message is entitled, The Davidic King. The Davidic King. And it's from Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. It's a famous passage. Handel's Messiah made this passage famous. People know it for unto us. A son is given unto us. A child is born. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the famous uh, chorus that people, you know, sing in malls and, you know, whatever they call those things, flash mob in malls and all that good stuff. It comes from Isaiah 9, verse 6, which we read earlier. And I'm going to need to explain to you the Davidic king. Because the Davidic king has, makes lots of sense to an Israelite in 700 BC when this was written, less sense to us in the 21st century, but those Israelites who were believers are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You understand that? So if you would permit me, I'd like to give you a little bit of education about our family back in 700 BC. Isn't it fun? You know, people do these um, family tree things, whatever they're called, you know, find out where you came from.com and, uh, Man, can you imagine if you got into that early on, right? Invested in that company, like billions, right? People take a little saliva swab and they figure out you're, you know, actually from Botswana instead of Poland or something like that. And so I want us to understand, I want you to understand where you came from. I want to give you some of your family tree. You ready? Are you ready? Okay. So God at the beginning, this is going to be a long sermon. God at the beginning... When man fell, promised to save man, okay, through the seed of the woman. Later on, God chooses a guy named Abraham, a Hebrew, and he says, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. One of your seed is going to bless the nations. And from Abraham comes Israel. And Israel then is going to be, from Israel will come a savior. And in the history of Israel, their greatest king was a guy named King David, He ruled at about 1000 BC, the greatest king of Israel. Our text is written in 700 BC, 300 years later. When David was king, God made a promise to David. The Bible calls it a covenant. This is what he said to David. He said, one of your descendants will sit on your throne forever. You're a great king, but this king in the Davidic line, will rule the nations forever and ever and ever. He will bring perfect justice, perfect righteousness. This is the one, by the way, that the Jews were waiting for in Jesus' time, right? When he came into Jerusalem, they thought, this is it. He's going to knock out the Romans. He's going to set up the kingdom forever and ever on earth. He was it, but they missed that part of it. I am ringing a little bit. It's a little distracting to me. I'm so sorry. So, um, so, so he, he rules. He promises David, I'm going to give you a king who will reign forever and ever and ever. 
That's the Davidic king. Now, let's drop into our text this morning before we read it. He's writing this text to Israel in 700 BC, 300 years after David. And instead of Israel rising and being this great kingdom, when he's writing this, the 10 northern tribes have just been wiped out by the Assyrians. If you would show the map, please. So up at the top part of the map, you see where it says Samaria? See down below it says Judah? By the way, if you can see that, you have really good eyesight. One of these days, we're going to get giant screens, okay? Let's keep praying for that. And up, up a little bit above Samaria says Galilee. That's where Jesus was from, right? Nazareth in that area. So where it says Samaria and Galilee, all that area... The 10 northern tribes, when when this was written, when this promise that we're reading this morning was written, they had been wiped out. Why? Because they refused to worship the king. They had refused to worship God. They were worshiping everything else and everybody else. They were living for everybody else and everything else. They were looking for protection from all the other kings around them. But King Jesus, the Davidic king, they reject it. It, it. If this might help you here, I'm reminded when my kids were young and I'd be in the other room, I invariably I'd hear one of my kids, like outside or in their bedroom, they would say this statement, you're not the boss of me. Anybody ever hear that from your kids? Yeah, even though they don't say it, they're saying it to one another. And by the way, they're saying it to you, right? This little three-year-old, you're not the boss of me. <laughs> Folks, it's, we're, we're hardwired with that. So Israel has been saying to God, you're not the boss of me. And so God, because he's loving and he's holy and he's righteous, has, he's disciplined them. He's wiped them out. And then he gives them this promise. He gives them this promise. Not just to the 10 northern tribes, but all the tribes, the two in the south as well. But it's a, it's a time in Israel's history when there's hopelessness. In fact, our text begins with gloom and anxiety. And here's what I want you to hear. If it feels like Christian, you're like those 10 northern tribes. Whether it's because of your sin or someone else's sin and the discipline of God, and you're kind of stuck. You know, you're, you're hopeless. For most of us, that hopelessness is just a couple of areas. It's like a little rock we carry in our pocket. We're hopeless maybe in our finances. We're hopeless maybe in our marriage. We're hopeless maybe in our schooling. We just, we're just walking around with some hopelessness. Some of it's our fault. We know maybe because we've told God, you're not the boss of me in this relationship. And then we find ourselves with the Syrians running around in our backyard. But others of you, it's not just a couple of rocks in your pocket. You've got a backpack full of rocks on your back right now. And you're just hopeless. By the way, these people up here that this is being written to, most of them are in exile in a foreign country. They all saw their houses wiped out. Many of them saw their family members killed. Get that in your head. This isn't written to some church group enjoying a nice sermon on a Sunday morning. This is written to people who are hopeless and devastated under God's discipline. God's people under God's discipline. Hope is gone. Some of you may be like that today. I mean, just to get out of bed takes maximum effort. From that extreme to just the person that's a little hopeless in their career maybe or a little hopeless in their marriage or their parenting or whatever it is, God has a word of hope for you because the Davidic king has come. 
He's Jesus. And I pray that that hope is spoken into your heart. This king brings justice. He brings righteousness. So let's read about the king, shall we? The Davidic king. Isaiah 9. Please look at this in your Bibles. Open up your cell phones, whatever you use, iPads. Let's, let's see these words together. Isaiah 9, 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's that northern area. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee up there at the very north. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad and when they divide the spoil. You remember who he's writing to, right? This is a by faith passage. He's writing this to people that are, are doing the opposite of all that. They've been devastated. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulders and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. You're in slavery now, but I'm going to break that slavery. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, they had just seen those boots destroy their neighborhoods. And every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, A son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts. That's a military term. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the government that God promised David that 300 years later seemed impossible because the northern tribes were gone. This is the increase of God's kingdom forever and ever and ever. The people in Naphtali, the people in Zebulun and Galilee who had lost all hope because of the Assyrians wiping them out, are being given hope by God into their hopelessness. Jesus Christ, the Davidic king, steps onto the pages of redemptive history. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. You see, the Hebrew here is a very particular grammatical form. It's called the perfect tense perfect tense. It's as if it's already happened, though it will not happen for another 700 years. Jesus won't be born for another 700 years, but the way the Hebrew is written, it's it's already happened. It's called the prophetic perfect. The hope is certain because God is faithful. Those of us, those of you who have lost hope in a small area, in your marriage, in your parenting, at work, with your business, even for your own spiritual life, you feel dull, you feel lifeless. lifeless. Or those of you who are caring about backpacks filled with rocks of hopelessness, I tell you right now, God has given you hope in the Davidic King, Jesus Christ. He has come to take away your anguish and your fear and your darkness 
He's come to turn the light on like these beautiful bright lights. He brings us hope in Christ. It is certain. It is as certain as God himself. The promise of God's hope, point one. As we mentioned, Naphtali and Zebulun in verse one lie in ruins. ruins. The people's dreams are destroyed. Their homes shattered. There's a connection between 8.22, the last verse of the previous chapter, and 9.1. So how are these people to interpret their darkness? How is a, 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 an elect child of God who finds himself or herself in exile somewhere in the Middle East, maybe in modern-day Iraq, who knows, maybe in modern-day Syria, the Assyrians have wiped you out. How in the world do you interpret these dark circumstances? How do you interpret the dark circumstances of, of the failure that seems to be staring you in the face? Some of it may be your fault because of your sin. Some of it the fault of others because of their sin. And most of it a mixture of both. How do we interpret it? The answer is through the lens of what God has done for us in Christ. Hope is a present reality that looks by faith at what God has done for us in Christ. No doubt we can be tempted to look at the darkness and conclude this. God has forgotten me, or I've done so many wrong things that God has rejected me. They're both false, Christian. And it's exactly the lie that Satan would love for you to believe, or the world would love for you to believe, or your own flesh, that enemy within, would love for you to believe. But reject it. It's a lie. Literally, from the pit of hell. It's a lie. God will not forsake his people. Ever. Ever. He will discipline them. There are some owie, owies, as my kids used to say when we discipline them. Owie, 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 running through the house, saying owie, owie, owie. But he doesn't divorce his people. He doesn't orphan his people. No, he gathers the orphans in. He wants us to believe something different. He wants us to look at the darkness and by faith see the light. Look again at verse 1. God made this land that had been brought into contempt. You see that? But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. He's saying, I'm... I'm going to do this, and it's so certain that it's in the perfect tense. Believe it now. That's how you interpret your darkness. And now on the other side of the cross, on the other side of Christ, the way we interpret our darkness now, those disappointments you have right now, we all have them in relationships, in careers, in finances, in work, whatever. Listen, we interpret those by looking at God's certain promise. Because in Jesus, this is yes, and it's amen. How can you say that, Al? How can you say that it's Jesus that he's speaking of here? Because this very passage is the passage that Matthew used to describe Jesus on the screen. Matthew 4, 13 to 16. And leaving Nazareth, the map is gone, but Nazareth is up there in the Galilee area, okay, by the sea. And leaving Nazareth, he, Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. I've been in both places. The northern part of Jerusalem. Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters during his ministry. In the territory of what? What does it say? Zebulun and Naphtali. This is now 700 years later that Matthew's writing this. 
So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, God, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Are you dwelling in darkness? There's a great light over you, and that's Christ. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, are you living in the shadow of death? There's life that's over you. Eternal life. On them a light has dawned. Here's the deal. We did nothing to create the light. Notice it says the light has dawned. Mickey McDaniel often sends me pictures of the sunrise over Hollywood Beach. It's not because Mickey and I have some sort of weird relationship going on. Because every morning, Mickey walks five miles before the sun comes up on Hollywood Beach. I used to mock people that walk five miles. I run five miles. I'm airborne, 82nd airborne, right? Don't ever mock people that walk. I almost died walking with him five miles. He doesn't walk like this five miles. He like speed walks five miles. I'm like, stop. I think we met at 5.15 in the morning. Yeah, and depending on the time of year, at a certain point, it's gorgeous, man. The sun starts coming up on Hollywood Beach, man. Did Mickey do anything to make the sun rise? No. You can't do anything to make the sun rise on your darkness, but God promises to make the sun rise on your darkness. As invariably as the sun rises every morning, it's a sign of God's faithfulness. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. They rise in Christ. And it's joy that comes into our hearts when the sun rises, when Christ, our hope, dawns upon us. God raises him. God turns our head gently like a father and says, look, look, there's light. And with that light, verse 3, comes joy. Look at that. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. What? These are people in exile. Their homes have been destroyed. How can there be joy? Because they see God's promise and believe him. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. He's telling people that have just been conquered to act as if they're having a big party and they've conquered. Because it is true in Christ. We were those people in contempt, in darkness, deserving God's wrath. And God has increased our joy. How? By sending Christ dying for our sins on the cross, taking his wrath that we deserve, giving us the favor we don't, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven. Do you rejoice before the God who has caused the sun of his righteousness to dawn on your life? This promise of hope for the hopeless is the, is the promise that fuels us, church. Now here's the question. What is the basis of that promise? We've alluded to it before, but point two, the basis for the hope is Christ Jesus, our Lord. We've looked at it in verses six and seven. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. It is Christ, it is the kingdom of God. It's the promise to David that a son will be on your throne who will rule forever. It is the story of redemption. It is your story if you're a Christian. It's our story if we are believers together as a church. We are the people of God every bit as much as Israel and the elect were back then. We are now, the history has has just been progressing down through history, his story, and, and we rejoice in this. Our king, Jesus, has done what? Look at verse four. He's liberated us from the oppressor 
And in verse 5, he's invited us to celebrate with him. Look at verse 4 again. Interesting verse. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. In this verse, you have two biblical allusions to God saving his people. Remember, history, listen, history is just a rehearsal for God's ultimate kingdom. History is just, it's like, it's like, it's like you, know what, you know what a trailer is, right? Not, not something you put your stuff in in the back of your house, all right? A trailer, a movie trailer, right? History is a movie trailer for God's salvation that he promised. And so two movie trailers you have here. The first one is the rod of the oppressor in verse four is speaking of Egypt when God delivered his people from Egypt, maybe around 1500 BC, brought them through the desert and brought them into the promised land. Slaves, over 2 million of them, to include women and children, delivered by God, from the most powerful army in the world. Could they deliver themselves? No, God delivered them. So Moses was the deliverer God chose. But oh, friends, look, that Moses points to the greater Moses, Jesus Christ. Second biblical illusion of God's delivering of his people, the history of redemption. It's like a high, okay, some of you, are you you guys awake this morning? All right, let's go with highlight real ESPN. You got it? You watch the Gators just beat up on FSU last year, right? <clears throat> or Michigan in the bowl game. I, yesterday, I watched that high, highlight reel again. I know, I'm sorry. Mickey, don't even look at me because I know you watch Oklahoma football like every day, all right? This is a highlight reel of God's victory over his enemies. The second highlight reel, the first one was Florida being FSU. Sorry, Michael. The, the, the second one was Florida being Michigan at, at, in the Capital One uh, Bowl in Atlanta. This one is Midian. What is Midian, you ask? Thank you. You notice I'm about to have a little problem here. Problem relieved, a little water in the desert. Yeah, that's good. You're giving your enemy water, right? <laughs> what is Midian? All right, Midian is alluding to God... Delivering his people through a judge, right? So you got to know your history, man. Study this stuff, okay? Exodus, later on, Judges, right? I don't know, 1200, 1300 BC. And Israel once again had said to God the following, you're not the boss of me. (laughs) And God, because he's so kind and he's so faithful and he's so holy, says, oh, I am and I'm going to discipline you through the Midianites. And they were enslaved by the Midianites. They would steal all their crops. They, they, you would work hard all week and the Midianites would be there at the door and you would give the Midianites your paycheck. And you'd have to go out and work hard again. You never got any of the money. And God sent a deliverer named Gideon. Here's the deal with Gideon. <clears throat> if you read it, Gideon starts off with 32,000 soldiers to fight against the Midianites. And by the time God is through with, with, with Gideon, because he wants to send Gideon a message, Gideon has 300 soldiers. That's bad enough, right? If we're talking, you know, airborne ranger guys, you know, just armed to the teeth, okay, maybe, right? No. 300 soldiers, and he says to them, look, this is what you do. Surround with those 300 soldiers a vastly greater number of Midianites while they're sleeping, right? Okay, so we're going to sneak in and kill them. No, 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 don't do that. When you surround them, have a trumpet, have a, a jar, like those clay jars, and inside have a candle. 
And so while they're sleeping with just 300 of you and no weapons, at a certain point, I'm going to tell you, go. And what I want you to do is I want you to blow the trumpet as loud as you can. Whoa, 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 Lord, I think we're going to wake up if we do that. Exactly. Blow the trumpet as hard as you can. And then to add to that, talk about an alarm clock, it can be annoying, smash the jar and the lights will come shining all around them and shout this, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Man, you got to have faith to do that, right? Because you know if this doesn't work, God delivered them. There was such a panic amongst the Midianites that they all killed themselves. He delivered them. What's the point of that? Could they deliver themselves? No. Only God could deliver them. Only God could deliver them. And then having delivered them, in verse 5, God invites them to enjoy the fruits, the spoil of having won a battle. That's all it means in verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. The victory is so great that you will actually burn the military equipment of the army that had conquered you because they're all dead. You're going to celebrate in the bonfire of the spoils of the people that had oppressed you. And you're going to do it not having won the battle, but following Jesus, the Davidic king, the mighty God who won the battle for you. Jesus wins the battle and invites you onto the field to celebrate, to spike the football. Jesus wins the battle and you get all the spoils. And he won it on the cross. What? Where's that, Al? Glad you asked. Colossians 2, 13 to 15 on the screen. And you, speaking to Christians now, the brothers and sisters of these elect back in 700 BC, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, Gideon surrounding the army of the Midianites, Moses delivering a bunch of slaves out of the most powerful nation in the world, destroying Pharaoh and his army. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. How? By putting them to shame. Where? Don't be shamed. God shames his enemies, but he blesses his people by triumphing over them in him. And actually the Greek could be translated in it because it's speaking of Christ on the cross. Jesus won the battle on the cross. We get the spoils of victory. We interpret our darkness and tumult and hopelessness today through the hope of resurrection, hope of resurrection. There is no turnaround greater in anything in life, anything you can imagine than someone being dead and now he's alive. That is the basis of our hope, friends. And who is this Davidic king? Well, in verse six, he's, he's defined here as the wonderful counselor. Jesus is wise. Put that next slide up. Jesus is wise. He is the one who has the wisdom suitable to sustain his everlasting kingdom. Listen, the decisions of a king make or break a kingdom. The decisions of a, of a parent, of a boss, it's going to make or break the family or the job. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor. He makes just the right decisions at just the right time. You can trust him. But if you're busy saying, you're not the boss of me, right? You can either do that or trust him. Because he's told you how to live. He's given you his instructions. 
This is how, what got Israel in trouble in the first place. If you constantly do stuff against God's word, please don't blame God for what happens. God is kind and merciful, but he's holy. What's amazing is have, after having done that, he, he saves us. But there will be some discipline involved. There will be. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the, everlast, he's the mighty God. Excuse me. He's the mighty God. Jesus is God in the flesh. He's God incarnate. He is the God of all creation who fights against his enemies and wins, who delivers us and his people. And he gives us the spoils of his victory. He's the everlasting father. Jesus is the king who will care for, which includes disciplining, his people as a father cares for and disciplines his children for his glory and for their good. And we, his people, respond with obedient reverence. He's the everlasting father. That is, his rule will never end. And we, his people, are secure in his eternal care. Your darkness, your tumult, it is not a sign that God has somehow abandoned you or you've done so many wrong things or you've disobeyed so many times that God is orphaning you. No, that is a lie. Jesus died on the cross. God chose you. No one can pluck you out of his hand. God will care for you. That care takes on different means and looks differently, but he will for your, for your good, for his glory, church. Our hope is based on Jesus' care for us as an everlasting father. Finally, he's the prince of peace. Jesus makes all things right. In verse seven, he says that he will rule with justice and righteousness. You see that? He will establish the kingdom and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Who's right? Who's right in the conflict you had this morning? Who's right in what's happening on earth today? Who's right in anything? God is. And, and, and when we align our lives with what God says, we have true peace. There is no peace apart from that. You could try to sue for peace. It's not going to work. He's not an equal. But he gives us peace in Jesus and is patient with us when we rail against him put our hands on our hips like a little two or three or five or 25-year-old and says, you're not the boss of me, or a 62-year-old. And instead of destroying us, he places the wrath we deserve for that on Jesus as Christians, gives us the favor we don't, and lovingly disciplines us as a father. He never gives up on us. Look at me. God does not give up on you. Now, he, he may discipline you, you may wish he'd give up on you at some point. But it's for his glory and your good. A glory you can't even imagine right now. It's worth it. It's worth it. So what's the appeal this morning? Well, the appeal is this. The Prince of Peace, the Everlasting Father, the Mighty God, the Wonderful Counselor. These are just descriptions of who God is. Jesus revealed it in the flesh, literally. But these are just pictures of our God. He is the one who sets us free. He is the one who gives us hope in our hopelessness. He is the one that will restore. He is the one that makes us new. He is the one that makes all things right in your life. He'll give you peace, righteousness, and justice. So the call here this morning is to answer this question. 
Who's the boss of you? Is Jesus your Lord and Savior? And and as you answer that question, you bow your knee to him. May he reveal to you the light and the healing and the life and the joy that he brings, even if there's some dark circumstances you're working through right now. Truly, he who is mighty has done a great thing. Take it on flesh. He's conquered death's sting. That's the greatest enemy, friends. Shattered the darkness and lifted our shame. Again, I return to this theme of shame. There is no shame. There's conviction, but there's not shame. There's a difference. In Christ, you have enough and you are enough because Jesus defines you, not your performance. Trust him. Trust him this morning. I realize there are some here that are really living through some very dark times. Some of you, are, it's, it's health issues. You're just asking God, why? What's going on? Some of your financial issues, relational issues, maybe work issues. He who's mighty has done a great thing. He's taken on flesh. He's conquered death's sting. Shattered the darkness and he's lifted your shame. Holy is in his name. Let's pray. Then we'll stand and sing that song to conclude. Father, I pray that you would reveal yourself this morning as, as our king. Lord, would you forgive us, forgive me when I put my hands on my hips, metaphorically speaking, and with the veins popping out of my neck, saying, you're not the boss of me. So sorry, Lord. Thank you for your patience with me. May that instruct us as parents or grandparents when our children or grandchildren do that to us. May we be patient with them. Yes, uphold what's right. Yes, discipline them. But always do it lovingly as you do. Lord, give hope to the hopeless this morning. May we see you as the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more resources or see how you can donate to this ministry, simply visit palmvista.org. And be sure to subscribe so you can stay up to date with upcoming teachings.